0: Good to see you. My name is Luke, and uh, hello, Mountain Road Campus. Let's just greet everybody else on the other side of the camera, wherever they are, at uh, Edgewood Campus, Abingdon, Aberdeen. Anybody watching online, welcome. Here we are, continuing in this series, asking what child is this? As we talk about the child, I want to tell you about my dad. Um, I, uh, this isn't true for everybody, I realize, but I have a great dad. Sometimes I'll say the phrase, I had a great dad, and then I realize, no, I mean, he's, he's still here, he's still great. And I'll use the past tense, though, because I'm thinking about his influence on me from decades ago when I was young. Because of him, and certainly because of my mom, she's exceptional as well, all of the foundational building blocks were there for me growing up. I never spent a moment wondering if I was loved. It was spoken in words. It was shown through actions. I'm proud of you, son. My dad said that to me all kinds of times. There was never a doubt about that. He was a coach on the bench sometimes, a fan in the stands sometimes. In any case, I could always hear his voice. It was encouraging, it was instructive, never critical, never shaming. We spent lots of time together. He prioritized that. We had open dialogue. We could talk about sensitive subjects. We could be vulnerable with each other. He would apologize when he was out of line. He was someone that could be trusted. He was who he says he was. When he left the house, he went where he said he was going. And he always came back, something that I always looked forward to. At this stage, being a father myself, uh, one of the things that I really remember most when I think about my dad is that he was someone who offered good guidance. His advice was solid. I grew to believe that he was a man of wisdom. Knowledge, yes, but more than that, wisdom, as in keen insight into situations. Perspective that could reframe your understanding. The intangible qualities that make a person skilled at life. Wisdom. My dad had that, and he still does. So that's basically the package of thoughts that comes together for me when I think about my dad. That's the thumbnail sketch. And after studying the text we've been in, Isaiah chapter 9, this week, a distinct memory of me with my dad surfaced. Actually, a lot of it is very fuzzy, but one part in particular is very clear. The fuzzy part is that I was a teenager. And I had gotten myself into some sort of funk. I don't remember exactly what was going on. It had something to do with a girl. And it was affecting my mood. Had a real sour attitude. And I'm kind of taking it out on my dad one day, you know, like moody teenagers do. And he's probing, trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm very closed off. And then at one point, he said to me, do you want my advice? And I said, no. (laughs) That's the part I remember very decisively, very confidently, very rudely, I said, no, I don't want to hear what you have to think about it, and that was the end of that. Now, we were just a few years away from when I would leave the house, and he would say to me, you're an adult now, from this point forward, if you want my advice, you'll have to ask for it. Now, I didn't know that was coming. He knew that we would eventually get there, but we weren't there yet, uh, still, though, in that moment, my dad, uh, perhaps in preparation for what's to come, he chose not to force himself upon me, though he was very much in charge of my life at that point, and instead offered to share his wisdom with me. I did not want it. And I told him so. It's memorable because I had that little feeling of euphoria, like I just did that. I just blew him off. <laughs> Look how big my britches are. <laughs> Never done that before. This is a new era. Never mind the fact that I'm clearly miserable. At least I'm calling the shots now. Now, among all of us listening right now, we could surely tell tons more moody teenager stories and rebellious teenager stories, and the kind that would be of a much more sensational type, right? The the details that I've shared are relatively tame. As I said, I can't even remember most of them. But the truth is that we could swap stories all day long and change out all different kinds of details across different contexts and generations and situations. And while all the journeys that we have are different, they take a different path, and we won't remember every twist and turn, clarity about one thing that's common to everyone will emerge. At some point, we have all come to the decisive, confident conviction, I will be determining what's best for me right now, and I don't care what anyone else thinks about it. And we double down on that conviction time and time again. Whether you got no dad or you got a dad like mine, whether you're surrounded by caring, wise people or stupid, hateful people, whether you're educated or not, we have all become most fond of trusting our own wisdom the most. And that choice comes with consequences. I'm starting to sound like a dad. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and take it out and turn to the book of Isaiah. you find it about right there in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 1. We've been listening to Isaiah's message, which was written several hundred years before the child that we know as Jesus. But when the story of Jesus was announced to the contemporary world, it was told with ancient echoes, many of them from Isaiah. And when you listen to how Isaiah begins his message, you hear what sounds like a dad, Isaiah chapter 1. First line introduces Isaiah. Second line sends this message far and wide. Isaiah 1, verse 2. Listen, O heavens. Pay attention, O earth. For the Lord speaks. These are God's words. And God says, I raised children. I brought them up. But they have rebelled against me. Now, even if you've never been to church before or never read the Bible, you probably know that one of the main ways that the Bible presents God to us is as a parent, as a father most often. The most famous prayer in history is the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer as we've come to know it. Uh, The ancient creeds begin with, I believe in God. The Father, generation after generation, as they have been in relationship with God and meditated on God and tried to describe what God is like. The image of Father has proven to be a faithful representation of God. A helpful way to grasp who God is. Even as Ben described last week, understanding God is trying to, like, trying to fit the ocean in a teacup. But at least we got something. Well, when Jesus teaches his followers to pray and address God as father. He's standing in line with how God has identified himself in his relationship with his people. You might remember that the Exodus part of the Bible, that's the 10 plagues and the parting of the sea. They make movies about it. Um, that is a father rescuing his son. What I mean to say is that God instructed his people, or the leader of his people, Moses, he instructed him, go say to Pharaoh, the ruler of the uh, the people who are enslaving you, say this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. God looks compassionately at the whole community of the people Israel and says, that's my son. And he rescues them. The prophet Hosea, speaking much later, but reflecting back, remembers it the same way. God says in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, you you play it forward in history. That community grows, develops into a nation. (laughs) You think the growth and development of a child going through puberty with the hair and the hormones and the mood swings and uh, the argument, you think that's awkward and painful? That's nothing compared to the growth and development of these people who can't hardly be tamed. Stories for another day. But yet, God graciously settles them into the land that God promised them. And when they ask God for a king to rule over them, even though God's like, you don't know what you're asking for, God again graciously makes promises, this time to the king, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. The only way this works, the only way the king's plans succeed, the only way you grow as a people the only way you flourish and thrive as a nation and fulfill the purpose for which I created you, namely to bless all the nations, the only way all that happens is if you trust me as your father. And just to be clear, you may not have had a father that you could trust, but this God and father has only proven himself trustworthy. He is who he says he is. He goes where he says he's going to go. He raised these children... He brought them up. All the foundational building blocks for them to grow up were there. His guidance is sure. His wisdom is unparalleled. But when he continually, repeatedly offered to share that wisdom with his children, they continually, repeatedly said, no, we don't want it. God raised these children. He brought them up, but they have rebelled against them. When we arrive at the book of Isaiah, it's time to be honest about that. God continues, I wish you'd learn from the animals in your fields. Verse three an ox recognizes its owner, a donkey recognizes where its owner puts its food, but Israel doesn't recognize me. My people don't understand. Their offspring who do wrong. Children who do wicked things. They've abandoned the Lord and rejected the Holy One of Israel. Stark words. It reminds me, we have another word for donkey. I won't say it because it's on the list of things we tell our kids not to say. But who's the dumb donkey in this scenario? Have, have you come to a similar moment of reckoning like that before? With a parent or a teacher or a coach? or God himself, someone who fed you, bred you, poured into you, loved you, protected you, but you resisted, rejected, ran away. It was time to be honest. They did you right, but you did them wrong. Maybe today is a day to be honest about that. On the other side of the coin, there are parents listening right now who feel as if they know what it's like to be in God's shoes. They're saying to themselves, we did everything we knew to do. Everything we could do. We brought these children up. But they are determined to go their own way. It's painful to watch. It's painful to experience. There are consequences. In Isaiah, or in Isaiah, God sounds like a dad that's trying to help his children come to their senses. Verse 5, why do you insist on being battered? Why do you continue to rebel? Look at your head. It's got a massive wound. Your whole heart is sick from the soles of your feet up to your head. There's no spot that's unharmed, only bruises, cuts, open wounds. They haven't been cleansed or bandaged or treated with oil. Again, he's talking about the nation as if they are his son. He's speaking metaphorically, even as I'm sure there are some in this room who have rebelled to the point of experiencing those literal wounds. God doesn't just speak figuratively. Here's the literal picture of what's going on. Verse 7, your land is devastated. Your cities are burned with fire. Right before your eyes, your crops are being destroyed by foreign invaders. They leave behind devastation and destruction. I, I'm really sorry. I, I know. It's the most wonderful time of the year. We've look at all the decorations we've got. We've got Polaroid pictures of families smiling, merry and bright, sparkling Polaroids all over. And here I am talking about devastation and destruction. Is this really the best time for that? I don't know what the best time is. But I do know that the contemporary Christmas story is told with these ancient echoes. And it is a piece of the past, even embarrassing and difficult as it is, that can't be erased. But it can be learned from. In fact, it must be, if we are truly going to know what child is this. I've noticed today that uh, God, God's name, tends to get thrown around a lot by the winners. Just listen to a post-game interview from a member of the winning team thanking God for our victory. We're just sure that God is on our side. The scoreboard tells the story. I mean, we were all over there praying to God as the kicker was lining up for the game-winning attempt. And we all see how God delivered. Just tells itself, I guess. Well, when Isaiah is trying to help his people understand the situation that they're in, he's basically saying, we're not winning. And it's our fault. They are quite literally being dominated, and it's not just one team against another. No, there are multiple foreign armies who are destroying them or threatening to destroy them. They've blown off God, their father, and the scoreboard, if you will, tells the story in the form of houses destroyed and fields burned and property stolen, and it begs the question, is God on our side? He's our father. It's been that way for generations, but Is God still with us, or has he disowned us? Have we fallen so far behind as to not be able to come back? Anyone would be asking those questions. I've never faced anything as extreme as what the people in Isaiah have, and maybe you haven't either, but for any one of us, when the scoreboard of my life tells the story of repeated sin and prideful rebellion and stupid decisions, and selfish actions, and hurtful words. And the video board is showing replays of my refusal to listen to God's wisdom. It begs the question, has God disowned me? This this is an awful, awful time for the people in Isaiah's day. I, I don't suspect that anyone is like running around saying, it's a great time to be alive. What a wonderful life. The king's got to be feeling that way. Foreign armies are breathing down his neck, taunting him. Who's your daddy? Like, we own you. So he's got these thoughts playing in his head. Well, maybe God is playing for the other team now. He's left us orphaned here to fend for ourselves. Or maybe their God is bigger than our God. That's why they're winning. Maybe our God can't deliver. Maybe we need to get ourselves out of this mess, calling in reinforcements, more money, bigger military, sell out to someone else to save our skin. What good is our God to us anymore? Sure, we might be miserable, but at least we'll be calling the shots. And we've all gotten ourselves into this riled up endless loop of self-talk, and we're in our own heads, and we're stirring up more anxiety, rationalizing the irrational in a conversation with ourselves. And what we need in those kinds of moments is a word from God to interrupt that cycle, we need some fresh perspective so we don't just spiral ourselves further into a hole. Enter Isaiah. God needs someone to communicate a true word to his people in this very challenging situation. Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. I'm thinking, I don't know, you want to talk to these people? You've heard how they're described. Wicked. Wicked. Rebellious. Oh, there's plenty more. Where that came from? They're callous, faithless, oppressive, unjust, arrogant. I mean, the list just keeps going on. If if we want to draw an analogy, if we were in middle school, we would just simply say, "Well, these are the bad kids." That's who They're, they're. They're the bad kids. My buddy Dwayne is a security officer at a middle school. He knows who these kids are. If you want to be stretching the analogy further, well, you would have to say then that these are the principles. Kids. They should be model students. They know better. They've had the care and instruction. They should lead the way. But they're the bad kids. Ripping sinks off the wall and stealing lunch money and cussing out the teachers and beating up the sixth graders and flipping off the principal. But these are the ones that God is trying to love because they're his kids. These are the ones that God is trying to get through to. Isaiah, you're going to be my mouthpiece. Tough assignment. But Isaiah is faithful. He does. Speak for God. We have his words. He's faithful to send the message that God wants him to send through vivid word pictures and poetry. There are a few very important, very relevant messages that he makes clear. One we already know. There are consequences when you blow off God. You cut yourself off from the source of life, think you can do life on your own. There are consequences to that. Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. This is the fundamental distortion for all of us. To look at something evil and trick yourself into believing that it's good to abuse drugs or abuse children, to cheat on your taxes or cheat on your spouse, to say, from this angle, that looks good to me. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Um, God, we know what you said, but we'll be deciding for ourselves what's good and evil. We're most fond of our own wisdom. There were consequences to that, and the people in Isaiah's they are replaying that. Number two, Isaiah also makes it clear Yes, you're losing. But no, God is not now playing for the other team. Additionally, no, the so-called gods of those other nations are not stronger than our God. Number three, redemption is still possible. All is not lost. If you are willing, if you are willing, Isaiah 1, Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Again, that's if you are willing. That might be a big if. But God is willing. And just when it started to sound like maybe this is good news, there's another piece to Isaiah's message. And that is number four, your suffering is not over. No, God's not on the other team. No, those gods aren't stronger than our God. Yes, redemption is possible. But this is not a quick fix, not because God is lethargic, but he is dealing with people who, when God tries to help, they believe God is the problem. God is a stumbling block to them, as Isaiah says. Their hearts are hard. Their minds are dark. God knows who these people are. They're ever hearing, but not understanding, ever seeing, but not believing. God's own kids supposed to be a model of what's right and just and true to all the other nations. But they reject that to their own shame. And because they refuse to learn any other way, God will allow them to experience life subject to other nations. Might be the hardest thing any parent has to do. Let your kids learn the hard way. Especially when they're looking at you saying, you're the problem. Now amidst that difficult news, Isaiah is faithful to announce God's redemption plans. Saying that God's saving work will enter a gestation period. This is where the talk of the child comes in. That famous verse that we read around Christmas time, Isaiah seven fourteen: The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. It, it's a child. The child is the sign that God is at work among you. I'll talk about a Christmas gift we don't need. A child? What we need is a warrior. We need a whole army of them. A Red Rider BB gun would at least be something. But that's not how God chooses to be with his people. You can see this is a hard message to sell hard-hearted people. To say your suffering is not a sign of God's weakness. It's not a sign of God's absence. Nor of God's indifference or non-action. No, God is at work. God is with us even as our lives are threatened, even as armies approach and city walls are broken through, even as foreign kings act as if they have all the power in the universe. Isaiah says God laughs at their arrogance even while allowing their dominance for a time. The Word of God through Isaiah is trying to make that clear. The slow-growing sign of a vulnerable child is trying to make it clear. God is still with us. And there are basically two ways to respond to those things. You could, number one, do what Isaiah did when he said, I will wait for the Lord. I know we can't see him right now. He's he's hiding his face from us. But I will wait for the Lord. I will put my trust in him. That ain't cheap faith. That ain't check a box on a survey, do you believe in God, yes or no, sure, kind of faith. And it ain't going to be the response of a number of people, unfortunately. Isaiah paints the picture of the other option. Verse 21, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. And then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into outer darkness. Look up and curse God. Look out and see only despair. That's a dark place to be. I know people who've been in exactly that place. And some might be there right now. God knows people who've been in exactly that place because they're his own kids. In their anger, they accuse him of not being there. Out of fear, their faith in him vanishes. In the darkness, they say he doesn't exist. The story of Christmas is told with ancient echoes in the darkness of a father trying to love children who won't love him back. I can't really see my stuff here. There, you, have, uh, you got a Bible with you a phone where you can bring up the Bible? Anybody has got that? Turn, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Put a light on your Bible or bring it up on your phone. Isaiah chapter 9. Anybody who has a Bible, go ahead and do that. We need some help here. Isaiah chapter 9. You can actually participate in the thing I'm inviting you to do. Isaiah chapter 9. I see a few faces lighting up. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. What's the first word? I heard one right here. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. What's the first word? I think this side of the room is participating. I think this side of the room, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1 is, what's the first word? Now this side of the room forgot. Everybody together, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, what's the first word? Nevertheless. Nevertheless! One of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Some of your translations might say, but, it's a big but, a monumental, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. It may look dark. All the surrounding circumstances of what you've done and what's been done to you may cause you to despair, but God's redemptive plan will come to birth. For behold, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We have been listening to these echoes in the Christmas story over the last three weeks praying and hoping that God would invade our darkness with his life that that the light of Christ would truly shine into our lives so that we would know him for real not just know about him and in hearing this we we also come to know something about ourselves now I've never faced anything quite as intense and extreme as what the people of Isaiah's day experienced but I can see myself in those people can you I think my classmates would agree I wasn't one of the bad kids in school. But the same tendencies and the same temptations that have been distorting people and leading them to rebel against their heavenly father since ancient times are at work in me also, and it's true for all of us. We want to decide for ourselves what's good without consulting God. We often choose to live in the dark and conceal and lie and cheat, thinking God can't see us. We act like God doesn't exist when things are going good. And then we get mad because it feels like God doesn't exist when things are going bad. We fight with our siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. We leave messes for others to clean up. We cry loudly when we get hurt, but we're deaf to the cries of those we hurt. We move farther and farther and farther away from God and then accuse him of abandoning us. How do you love people like that? Who could love people like that? Our only hope is an everlasting father. A father who knows the truth about us. A father who who knows, who doesn't just see the scoreboard of our rebellious actions, but is stung by them personally and yet refuses to say game over. An everlasting father who feeds the mouth that bites him, forgives the mouth that curses him. An everlasting father whose commitment to us endures through our arrogance and stupidity. An everlasting father whose patience with us is for the purpose of saving us. An everlasting father who doesn't give up on the bad kids. An everlasting father who is ancient of days and present today, holding out his hands to us. An everlasting Father whose promises go beyond the grave, whose love can't be stopped by any power of evil or hatred at work against us or within us. An everlasting Father who says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. The Christmas story is told with these echoes of our everlasting Father loving people Who wouldn't love him back? You see, there was a child way back then. Isaiah and all the people saw it. It was given as a sign from God to them to say, I am your father. Your actions are leading to death, but I can still bring life. You tried to kick me out, but I'm still here. Your love has grown cold, but my love for you is still white hot. I am your everlasting father. And then again, 700 years later, God doubles down again on that love by showing up as a child himself. He gets caught up in the messes that we make. He's sent to the grave by the evil that we produce, only to come out the other side with an everlasting life. A life he wants to share with us. So I don't know how dark it is in your world right now. I don't know if you had parents who reflect our everlasting Father or who have abandoned him and abandoned you. But there are basically two ways to respond to all of these things. One, you can repent. You can wait for the Lord in the dark. You can trust the Father. Or two, you can curse God and give up. This Christmas, I pray you would know what child this is, for he is Jesus, given to us as a sign that our everlasting Father has not given up. And as my friend Angela at the Edgewood campus would say in response to these things, thank you, Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for your everlasting love. Thank you for being with us in the dark. And leading us. And even in times where we can't see you or it feels like you aren't there. God, remind us of your presence. Reassure us with your love. Guide us with your wisdom. Rehabilitate us in ways that only you can do. We're here today, God, to say that we need you. We trust you. Be our everlasting father. We know that our faith is sometimes not everlasting. It is fickle and faulty. But God, we need the renewal of your spirit to draw us to you. Hold us in your arms today. Be our Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.